0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This segment, Effective Management of Abnormal Uterine Bleeding, is provided by Omnia Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. This activity will discuss the updated diagnostic and treatment algorithm to manage abnormal uterine bleeding using a minimally invasive surgical approach a better understanding of the broad umbrella of bleeding that occurs outside of normal cyclic menstruation, proper patient workup, risk management options, and selection between techniques will also be discussed. Dr. Monroe, welcome to the program.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. We're always eager to hear your opinions about this very important topic that you're a renowned expert in. So let's just start off in saying Dr. Monroe, what comprises abnormal uterine bleeding, or AUB, in the reproductive years, and what are the potential causes?
1: Well, abnormal uterine bleeding is uh, an abnormality in one or a combination of four variables, the frequency, regularity, duration, or and perceived volume of bleeding. The categorization can be further broken down into acute or chronic, so that Women with chronic abnormal uterine bleeding, we've defined as having more than three of their previous cycles in the past six months, for example, affected in this way. Alternatively, you can have acute abnormal uterine bleeding, which is usually an episode of heavy menstrual bleeding that, in the opinion of the clinician, is of sufficient volume to require urgent or emergent management.
0: So for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to exclude acute uterine bleeding or heavy menstrual bleeding. So how do we really start when faced with such a patient? For example, we often see patients who have perceived heavy bleeding, but in reality clinically it's not. So are there any useful laboratory tests?
1: Well all, it's really important with our FIGO systems to recognize in fact that there are two systems and the history which I think has not very well been taught or appreciated is the critical first step. So a structured history really has to be performed because this is the key to the identification of some of the potential causes that aren't detectable by imaging or laboratory tests. So a history that documents the cycle length, the regularity of that cycle, which we now know is probably give or take four days. And we know now that the frequency should be between 24 and 38 days, not 21 and 35 as was previously perceived. The duration is normally up to eight days. And the volume, which really is something that the patient really has to determine. When we say that maybe they really don't have heavy bleeding, we don't think that's important. If a woman says, I've got heavy bleeding, and you say you don't because your hemoglobin is normal, that doesn't really help her because if her quality of life is affected by what she perceives to be heavy bleeding, then we take that seriously and respect that decision even if her hemoglobin is normal. So, well. Measuring the hemoglobin and the red cell indices is very important. The absence of anemia, for example, or the absence of evidence of iron deficiency, while reassuring to a certain extent, does not mean that this patient doesn't qualify for some type of intervention if she uh, desired. Now, with respect to other tests to try to sort out ovulatory function, for example, or coagulopathy, uh, there are a few, but history really trumps them in most instances. However, in some women, the uh, history is is unclear and performing, for example, a serum progesterone level in what is anticipated to be the luteal phase can be useful, at least for that cycle. And of course, if the woman uh, has ovulatory dysfunction, if that's what we assume, there are a number of potential causes of that, which include abnormal thyroid function, hypocalactinemia, etc. that can be tested in a laboratory. The assessment for coagulopathy, which is present far more than perceived by many, can be first detected or suggested at least by a structured history. And if that structured history is suggestive of coagulopathy, then there are a number of uh, assessments that can be performed and we'll talk about those later.
0: Well, one of the things that you mentioned that's, I think, of great interest to our listeners is the perceived rate of bleeding because I don't think we can argue with frequency, regularity or duration in terms of critical components of the history and a structured history. Many clinicians are, are stymied by patients who complain of hemorrhaging and when they get a hemoglobin or hematocrit they see that it's normal. What at this point in the history do you really recommend our clinicians do when they're faced with that?
1: Except- patient's definition. Let me give you an example. If you're an individual and you leave the house every day not knowing whether you're going to have a bleed or not, your life's affected. It doesn't really matter if it's heavy or not heavy, but it can affect what you wear, where you sit, when you're going to have sex. It can be any of those things. So the the notion that hemoglobin drives this decision is a fallacious one. The National Institute of Clinical Excellence in the United Kingdom has really determined that heavy menstrual bleeding is that which is of sufficient abnormality or quantity so as to affect quality of life. And so I am one, for example, who really is behind the notion that we have to move from suggesting that women don't have a problem if they don't have an anemia to accepting and respecting the definition of the woman.
0: So over and above laboratory tests, what is there a role for uterine imaging in determining the cause of chronic abnormal uterine bleeding?
1: Absolutely. And this is very critical, particularly in determining the presence or absence of structural abnormalities that may, or in some cases may not, cause the bleeding that that is witnessed or experienced by the patient. So probably the most important one particularly for gynecologists because they have ready access in general to this is transvaginal ultrasound. So transvaginal ultrasound is very important it can help with the diagnosis of endometrial polyps, adenomyosis and leiomyomas and can even be suggestive or helpful in determining women with ovulatory disorders. So not only simple transvaginal Ultrasound is important, but also the use of contrast. And that contrast is generally saline, but also can be with gel. And this is an assessment that I think has been undertaught throughout the United States, but one that's very easy to do as long as you know how to do it. The catheter that can be used is as simple as an insemination catheter. And the infusion device is as simple as a 10-milliliter syringe full of saline. And by placing this fluid in the endometrial cavity, one can identify endometrial polyps. One can identify the relationship of lyomyomas to the endometrium. And these two features are very important and can really be helpful in a relatively rapid identification of possible contributors to the bleeding. Of course, there are other imaging assessments as well. MRI has a use it's very important, uh, particularly in women who have a combination of adenomyosis and gliomyomas or where the uterus is very large and it's very difficult t- transvaginally to identify or evaluate the uterus. It's also a value in women who can't be examined with transvaginal ultrasound because of, for example, virginal status or those who are postmenopausal and have a very sensitive vagina that limits the evaluation. So there are a number of places where transvaginal ultrasound can have a role. Now, I, I consider that imaging also can include hysteroscopy, although most people don't use it in that context. But if we think of, of the full package, if you will, of imaging, diagnostic hysteroscopy, preferably in an office environment, is also very useful. It doesn't, though, evaluate for adenomyosis and has some limitations in determining the relationship of the leiomyoma to the endometrium. On the other hand, hysteroscopy can provide a see-and-treat approach where one can hysteroscope the patient and at the same time or in the same setting at least uh, remove an endometrial polyp or sample the endometrium in a directed fashion.
0: You were one of the key authors of the palm Coin system of classification of abnormal uterine bleeding. And with a mind towards utilizing that system to see and treat patients within a one or two visits if possible. Can you go over some of the key points of the palm coin algorithm for us?
1: Well, first of all, I wouldn't call palm coin an algorithm, but it is the second of the two Figo systems. The first is the one I mentioned, obtaining that structured history. And without that structured history, one can't really do a palm coin categorization. So this this coin system, if you will, breaks down the various possible contributors in a given individual in a way that allows one to perhaps design uh, therapy after determining causes. And in many women, uh, more than one positive finding can be present at the same time. And some of those findings may or may not uh, contribute to the bleeding. For example, a type 5 leiomyoma that doesn't Impact by definition, the endometrium probably has nothing to do with abnormal bleeding. Many polyps don't have anything to do with the bleeding, and endometriosis often has nothing to do with the abnormal uterine bleeding, but they all can. So, PalmCoin allows you to collect all of these potential causes and then uh, try to address the patient uh, in a way that meets her needs and desires with respect to fertility and degree of intervention. So, for the structural entities, the polyps, AUBP, adenomyosis, aub and lyomyomas, (AUBL) all require some type of, of imaging and, and as we've said, ultrasound is the, the beginning. While polyps, for example, can be suggested with simple transvaginal ultrasound, uh, addition of contrast to that ultrasound can be very helpful. and really as sensitive as hysteroscopy in making a diagnosis. Adenomyosis typically doesn't require the contrast, but there are uh, a number of features, including heterogeneity, the presence of stria, uh, lakes, little microcystic areas, thickening of the myometrium, particularly posteriorly, but sometimes globally. All of those are independently suggestive of adenomyosis, and the more of them that are present, uh, the more Likely the diagnosis is, is there, and indeed, in reasonable hands, transvaginal ultrasound is equivalent to MRI for this uh, diagnosis when compared to histopathological examination at the time of hysterectomy. And then finally, uh, leiomyomas often can be identified by transvaginal ultrasound. But it is our understanding that when leiomyomas contribute to the genesis of abnormal uterine bleeding, which by the way is generally heavy menstrual bleeding, so it's cyclical if the woman's ovulatory, when that when that uh, Lyomyoma is contributing to the bleeding, in order to do so, it should be in contact with the endometrium because in those circumstances, the diffusion of substances like uh, TGF-beta-3 from the Lyomyoma can influence the factors in the endometrium that are responsible for hemostasis. So it's very important before you ascribe cause of the bleeding to a specific gliomyoma that you demonstrate that it be adjacent to the endometrium. So that is something that can be very effectively determined by transvaginal ultrasound with contrast or contrast hysterosinography. And for most Americans, that's uh, SIS, saline infusion sonography. But uh, MRI can be effective there as well. So... Those are basically, in a nutshell, the the ways of distinguishing among those three structural entities. The fourth one, which is hyperplasia, and and for this uh, system, we're really talking about what we used to call atypical hyperplasia, which is now evolving to endometrial and neoplasia. That, of course, requires histopathological uh, diagnosis uh, with biopsy, and uh, those individuals are categorized further according to the FIGO and WHO systems that are appropriate.
0: Okay. Well, then is it really necessary to perform all of the investigations in all patients? Are there some kind of acceptable shortcuts that will get us to where we need to be?
1: First of all, we want to be careful. We haven't really talked very much about iatrogenic and uh, the non, uh, not-yet-or-not-otherwise-classified uh, groups. but. Um, that them when which which you might get, for example, in your history you might find that if a woman had a cesarean section. She might be at higher risk for uh, having uh, bleeding from what we call an isthmus seal. Uh, women with acute bleeding after having interventions could have an AVM malformation. So we have to think about those. But in general, if we can find a group of women who are very low risk, at least at first glance and at first impression, not all of these investigations are going to be necessary.
0: So Dr. Monroe, we've talked about different aspects of the palm coin system and some of them seem to lend themselves to therapies like endometrial ablation and others seem to lend themselves towards resection and other kinds of operative treatments. Can you talk a little bit about how you would relate to the palm coin system and to these different surgical options?
1: Sure, Rob. Well, of course, medical therapy for many circumstances is what's going to be most appropriate. But for polyps, for example, we have no predicate example of medical therapy. We don't think medical therapy works. So polyps are an example of an entity that requires a surgical approach. And we now know that hysteroscopically directed polypectomy is the most appropriate with respect to therapeutic efficacy. We know that a lot of individuals put a hysteroscope in, take it out, put a polyp forceps in, pull out the polyp and then go back in and look to see if they got the job done. We know that the failure rate with that approach uh, is probably 15 times that of hysteroscopically directed polypectomy with some type of device, be it scissors, be it a resectoscope, be it a tissue removal uh, system. So polypectomy is one that's very amenable uh, to, to that approach. And for women who certainly desire fertility and have subnuchus myomas, myomectomy is the approach of choice. And so for them, uh, that should be done by the least invasive approach possible. And generally, that approach is hysteroscopically directed myomectomy. Now, the discrimination between those women who are appropriate for hysteroscopic myomectomy and an approach from above, the it laparoscomic or laparotomic that requires a a, a critical evaluation with imaging. But certainly, uh, the use of a resectoscope or a tissue removal system or one of the methods that we have described, which is the use of a bipolar needle and a tissue removal system, that can be done very effectively. In fact, it can be done even in an office system. Uh, Those women are not going to be appropriate for medical therapy. Uh, because, for example, their abnormal uterine bleeding and their infertility, if that's the case, uh, are actually related. Medical therapy isn't going to help the infertility aspect. Now, on the other side, if you have AUBE, AUBO, or even cases of AUBC, all of those are treatable with endometrial ablation. And uh, indeed, for women uh, who do not wish to ever become pregnant in the future, endometrial ablation can be useful for some types of submucous myoma, so A-U-B-L-S-M. The other place that endometrial ablation can be of some value is in women with submucous myomas who do not wish to become pregnant ever in the future. Now, this is not part of the original randomized trials, but there are a number of studies showing that in some women with submucous myomas, Endometrial ablation can be effective. So, the individual surgeon who is suggesting this uh, should be careful that whatever technique they use is appropriately and effectively performed with the submucous myoma that they're dealing with. And generally, this means that the submucous myomas are type twos, and it generally means that they're less than three or so centimeters in diameter. Uh, With respect to adenomyosis, it's a difficult circumstance. We have evidence that women with endometriosis can do well with endometrial ablation, but we're not sure which techniques are most appropriate. And we do know that a relatively high proportion of women who fail endometrial ablation do have endometriosis. So I think information on the appropriateness of endometrial ablation in women who have endometriosis is not uh, well determined or worked out at this time.
0: So, you've talked about tissue extraction and operative hysteroscopy, and you do so many hysteroscopies and both diagnostic and operative. Have you seen a change in the approach to operative hysteroscopy for polyps and fibroids with the advent of the new technologies using morselation as opposed to the 25 years that we had beforehand where we only had resectoscopes and roller balls and so on?
1: Well, anything that I say about this has to do with local perceptions and what I perceive is, is, is going on throughout the country. And uh, it is my impression that more people are utilizing these techniques because they never felt comfortable with radio frequency resectoscopes and with the aid of industry who are helping them, uh, and the relative simplicity of these devices, it's been my impression that there is a bit of an uptick, if you will, in the utilization of these devices, at least for removal of polyps. Uh, La lamyomas is another story, and I must say that I do have concerns because it's my impression as well that more women are having their lamyomas uh, partially treated because, as we know, these morselating or tissue removal devices do have some limitations when used on their own. They aren't particularly useful at getting at type 2 myomas. So we see more referrals from women who have persisting disease than I uh, uh, was experiencing in the past. Uh, we did, as I mentioned before, uh, publish a technique, uh, one that uh, was originally uh, published by uh, Batoci from Italy, uh, but we actually do it all in one setting where we use a, uh, a radio frequency needle electrode to actually incise into the pseudocapsule. And typically these uh, type 1 or type 2 myomas, if they're appropriately selected, they tend to extrude into the cavity and one can then dissect along the pseudocapsule and have a much greater chance of getting them out in a single setting than was uh, the case if you just used the tissue removal device uh, on its own. So, you know, I think there's great promise for these devices. I think they perhaps are more uh, consistently effective with polyps, but in the right hands, with the right combination of techniques, they can be very effective for uh, Lyon as well.
0: That's great, Dr. Monroe, because at the end of the day, we're all working towards providing our patients with the optimal care and the most efficient an accurate diagnosis that we can for their problems, as well as the safest and most cost effective treatments. So I think that the work that you've done has been critical in achieving those goals. And I really thank you for talking with us today regarding abnormal uterine bleeding, the different diagnostic and treatment algorithms, and the associated challenges associated with this common clinical problem. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Rob. This segment of CME on ReachMD is brought to you by Omnia Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com CME on your smartphone or tablet device. Thank you for listening.